The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to draw us here and to meet with us in so many different ways and now to meet with us over your word. Thank you. We ask now that you would take this by your spirit and press this word into our hearts and minds and grow us up. Show us Christ here, Lord, and draw us to him. Deepen widen, strengthen our connection to him, and so build your church and bring honor to yourself. That's what we look to you for this morning. Lord, please do it. Thank you for being trustworthy. Amen. Some time ago, I heard a mother speak about an interaction she had with one of her kids. She was speaking to a large audience telling about how he was wrestling to get his shoes on. He'd gotten the laces all tight in a knot. And then he had proceeded, of course, to make the knot worse by pulling on it, pulling on it, pulling on it. All the while his mother, as she said, is standing there watching and then eventually inviting him, hey, hey, let me, let me help you, let me help you. I do nots, was her phrase. I do nots. Believe me, you can't fix this, but I can. So come here, let me help you. And then she, speaking to all of us, tied that story to each one of us and Jesus. He looks at our lives and says, I do not. Believe me, you, you can't fix this. You can't handle it, but I can. In fact, that's why I've come, to help you with the knots of life, the burdens and confusions, the hurts, the sins, the sufferings, the weaknesses, the failures. Nothing is too hard for me. Believe me, you can't handle this, but I can. Come here, let me help. It was a connection that she made for us, and it is a, a simple and, I think, powerful reality that Christ has come into the world to help us with all of our troubles that we would end up helped and that he would end up honored as the helper. Us helped, God glorified. If we believe that he's the one who can do it and come to him. And that's what brings us to our passage today in Matthew chapter 9. People in faith coming to Jesus for the help that they know that only he can give. It is, for sure, as we look at it, it's faith that needs refining. It's, it's faith that needs maturing, for sure. It needs a more accurate understanding, certainly. But it's faith that is sufficient. Because it's not really about the strength of the faith. It's the strength about the one trusted. It's, it's faith that's in the right object. So, yes, it's imperfect that we see it here. But Jesus isn't. These folks, they come to him and find that he has power. He's the Lord of life. He's the Messiah. He's the one that they're looking for to help them with all the troubles they have. And, that, and that's, that's us too. That's what we're going to look at today in the passage here. We're going we're to see Jesus here and then 
look at him in, in the hopes of applying it to us and, and using this passage to, I hope, draw us closer to him in, in deepened trust. So let me read the passage. This is verses 18 to 26 of Matthew chapter 9. Then I'll pass back through the story to make sure we understand a few of the details before drawing out two observations. This is Matthew 9, beginning of verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Matthew 9. This passage, with its two interwoven stories, is also in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. And once again, here in Matthew, we see that Matthew has significantly abbreviated all the material. He's cut out stuff, he's condensed many of the details that would distract, in his, his opinion, distract him from the main focus that God has given him in writing this. So we find here, for instance, just a ruler. In the other Gospels, we know that he's a ruler of a synagogue, we even know his name, but that's all irrelevant for Matthew, he skips it. And also not relevant for Matthew is when exactly in this chain of events the, the girl actually died. The other Gospels begin with the ruler first saying, my daughter is at the point of death, and then later messengers come in the middle and tell him she's actually died. I mean, it's, it's a short walk from where he meets Jesus, so it, there's not a lot of time here in this, in this gap. But Matthew skips all that and just has the man saying to Jesus, literally, her life now is at the end. He knows he's talking about death. He knows he's not asking Jesus to come and heal his really sick daughter. He's asking him to come and overcome death and restore life. He's on his knees in front of Jesus talking about death and life. And as Jesus, with his disciples, gets up and starts to follow him, verse 20, behold, something else happens. Again, lots of details skipped here in Matthew, but what we are told is the woman comes up and just quietly touches the, just the, the fringe of his garment. The woman had been suffering what is almost surely some sort of menstrual bleeding for 12 years. We aren't told any of the details about exactly how or why or what the physical or emotional pain might have been that accompanied that condition, but she's keeping it totally secret because there, really she should not be there in the midst of this crowd, certainly not touching someone because, according to the law, Bleeding of this sort rendered a woman ceremonially unclean as well as anybody who came in contact with her as long as she was bleeding. 
So, she's been cut off from the presence of God at the temple for 12 years. And cut off from social interaction with others for 12 years. She has lived almost certainly in isolation and shame for a long time. And Jesus restored her. Literally, it says, he saved her. Matthew, unique for Matthew, Matthew uses the word for saved here three times. Other gospels use this word for saved to talk about healing. Back and forth, they use all kinds of different words. Matthew uses other words for healing. This is his word for saved, but he puts it in right here three times. If I touch his garment, I'll be saved, made well. Your faith has saved you, made you well. And so she was saved, made well. That happened. And then the group moves on and goes to the ruler's house. And they met the crowd of mourners there who were making an official commotion. Official because that was their job. These flute players and the, the wailing women were hired by families to raise a grievous commotion to express out loud what people were feeling inside and kind of help them get it out, I guess. And they're there, and it's already been arranged and is already underway before the Father and Jesus even return. They are grieving, and then Jesus tells them all to go away because they aren't needed, because she's just sleeping, not dead. And when it says they laughed at him, it doesn't mean they thought that was a funny joke. It means they scoffed. They ridiculed him. Because they know full well she's dead, and now they just discovered this Jesus guy is a fool. Can't even identify death. <laughs> they laughed at him. But he sends them out. It's a force world. He actually casts them out of the house is how it presents and when they were out, when they were gone, he says, this is actually just like sleep because I'm just going to go wake her up. Watch. Takes her by the hand, and she arose. That's the passage. Two stories that everybody saw and that everybody heard about the whole region. Two stories of great, powerful deliverance of two different women by Jesus with faith right in the middle, central to it all. So what do we draw from that? Well, two things. Here's the first. First observation, Jesus is the mighty, merciful Messiah that we need. I could say it, Jesus is the mighty, merciful Messiah that we need. Jesus is the mighty, merciful Messiah that we need. It's about Jesus being the one that we need. The, the might of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, we've seen that over and over again in this last chapter and a half. It's been, it's been kind of the main theme here for a little bit now. And, and here it is again, but it takes a new turn in these two miracles, especially as he raises a dead person. We look at that, and, and right off, we might naturally say, you know, like the crowd surely did when they heard about it, you know, whoa, that does not happen every day. And I, I almost kind of feel like to a church, church audience, I got to kind of say like, 
hey, y'all, that doesn't happen every day. Because we are way too familiar with the story with these types of things, and we kind of read the Bible, and it's like, oh, sure, he raised a dead girl. No. He raised a dead person back to life again. That doesn't happen every day. However, you might also say, yeah, okay, but it, this isn't the first time it's happened. It doesn't happen every day, but it isn't the only time. You know, what about Elisha in the Old Testament? Remember that? Elisha actually raised the Shunammite son. That happened. Dead, back to life. So, I mean, maybe this is just more of the same. Here's another prophet performing a miracle, right? Maybe? No. Not. Not because... If you think back to the Old Testament, yes, for sure, that boy came back to life. But everybody knew in the entire context, Elisha included, that Elisha was just a prophet of the Lord. And everything he said and everything he did was pointing people away from himself, past himself to the Lord. Everything he said was in reference to God. He would say something like, thus saith the Lord, as a prophet. But Jesus here is different. All the way through different. From the very beginning, different. He's introduced from the beginning as not just a prophet. He comes into the world, he comes into the Gospel of Matthew, introduced as the son of David, that is, the Messiah, the king. The fulfillment of the one the prophets are pointing to, not just a prophet. That's what John the Baptist said of him. That's what the duel with Satan in the wilderness is saying about him. That's what he claims for himself on the Sermon of the Mount, on, on the Mount. He, he says, you know, you heard it said, I say, not the Lord says, I say to you. Which is what we saw in last week's passage where he says, I'm the groom come to marry the people of God. Over and over again, I'm the king, and I'm not just a prophet. I'm the one who's come with all authority. The Old Testament expected this Messiah, this great anointed Savior King, the son of David, to come. And when he came and the Spirit was poured out, remember last week, E-Z-E-3-6-2-6, Ezekiel 36 talks about when the Messiah comes, the Spirit is poured out, Ezekiel 36. What happens in Ezekiel 37, next chapter? The dry bones live. Prophetic imagery, certainly, but tying into this Old Testament theme. But when Messiah comes, when that one comes, Messiah will conquer even the power of death. So if Jesus is in fact the Messiah, then Jesus can and will and must conquer the power of death. And I suppose that you could say, throughout all the chapters that we've been looking at, the jury is still out. Is he or isn't he? I mean, maybe there are some things in his favor. He teaches with such authority. I mean, that miraculous birth, that was something. He has power over the, over the weather and power over the demons. Yeah, on the other hand, though, he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and talks about how he's going to be taken away. That's not the Messiah. What? So people are unsure. What do, you, what do you make of this Jesus? Is he? I mean, there's a lot that says maybe. But he hasn't done the really unique thing yet. He hasn't made the dead rise. 
people are unsure that the jury was still out, like it is in a lot of places in a lot of people's hearts yet today. I know that Jesus is an interesting person. I know that Jesus is a, is a wise teacher, and he certainly is gracious, and there's a lot of love that comes out of Jesus, but I don't know. Is he, in fact, God in flesh? The one who's in charge of all things, the one that we have to answer to. Is he or is he not? So, it, it is helpful to kind of hold here for a second and put the, the two sides of the scales kind of, I don't know, there are some things in his favor and some things not, maybe. Face that. Is he or isn't he? People aren't sure. But this ruler is sure. And that's why he's there on his knees in front of Jesus. Everyone would have been shocked because he's a synagogue ruler on his knees in front of this traveling itinerant teacher. But he believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah and therefore he believed, I know that she's dead, but if you lay your hand on her, she will live because you're the Messiah and you reign over death. That's what he said, and that's what happened. The evidence proves the point. Kind of got to say to us, because we're so familiar with this, y'all, again, everyone here, the dead came back to life at the command of one who said, I am the Messiah, watch, I'll prove it. If that's true, and of course I think it is, if that's true, there's nothing that's outside of his hands. There's nothing that's beyond his control. This is far more than just a power show, like, like Jesus is doing something that's impressive and hard to do. It's, it is the final point of proof. Everything that's said about the Messiah I, I can check all those boxes except up to this point, except the, the dead are raised. And that point is particularly underlined at the very end of the story when Matthew uses his word, and she arose. The very last word of verse 25. He means more than, and she got up out of bed. He's using the word that he uses to describe resurrection. What he is saying essentially is that Jesus proved, I am the Messiah because, watch this, I begin the resurrection. Here with her. It's going to happen a, a whole bunch when, when he's actually raised. Chapter 27 talks about many who were asleep in the tombs came out and walked to the city of Jerusalem. Making the same point there with many more people. This is the one who not just has power to raise the dead, but what that means is he actually begins the resurrection. He has power to bring and to give, to restore life. Everything is in his hands. Now, for a lot of us here, I, I'm encouraging you, face that, look, look at that and realize, yes, and 
most of us here should hear that. And what I would want to say to you is, please be encouraged by that. Please see that and, and hope in it and, and cast all of your life into him, as we're going to talk about in a minute. Oh, that's such encouragement. Remember that. Be, be heartened. But perhaps for a few of us, there is here... And be careful. Because if this is true, what that means is that everything else that is not biblical Christianity is false. So there is encouragement, there is hope, and there perhaps is some challenge here. There's, there's a bit of, in putting these things out here and weighing them out, there's a, a, you're drawing up next to the third rail. Careful. It is easy to hear stories about Jesus, miracle this, amazing thing that, wonderful insight that. And you can hear that. It is easy to hear that, kind of like, Oh, the nation's news. There's a, there's, I guess there's a hurricane in Florida. There was a fire in Hawaii. I don't live in Hawaii. I don't live in Florida. So, I mean, that's tough for the people who live there. Doesn't directly affect me that much. Jesus is an interesting person. If you say, he, okay, yeah, that, okay, Maybe it's interesting for you, you all, you who believe that sort of thing. Oh, interesting. Good for you. I don't live there, though, so it's not really important to me. Ah, uh, careful. If this is true, he's the Lord of everything everywhere. He's the Lord of your world. He is the one ruler. Which... You, you can depend on and have to answer to. In no way whatsoever, if, I, I don't, in, I, I really detest the kind of the, the feeling of, so there. I'm not trying to do that at all. So please don't let that, don't let this like come to you like that. I'm saying careful, and I don't mean to like be proud about that. What I, what I mean is careful, don't pass this by and miss it. If this is true, this matters for every single one of us, for hope and encouragement that all of life, everything is in his hands. He is the one that we need, mighty and merciful. And if it's true, he's the one that you have to answer to. No one else. Jesus. In him there is resurrection. That is important. He is mighty. He is God. He reigns. He reigns over death. And also he reigns over chronic disorders, over all of the rest of life too, like bleeding afflictions. Which is close to the issue of life and death also. In a very real way, our life is in our blood. 
And hemorrhaging, of course, lots of flowing blood brings death, and the womb is closely related to life. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, deals with this passage, this story here. And she brings out a couple things that, while not explicitly in the passage, might be intended connections and and might even be in the, the province of God. The reason that this woman came up to Jesus at this time, well, he's on his way to raise this girl from the dead. Because, in a way, he figuratively raised her from the dead also. There's a connection. McLaughlin brings up that a lot of bleeding from the womb is a threat to a woman's life. And it's also a sign to the woman that there's no life in her and can't be. Not until the bleeding stops. And for lots and lots of women, McLaughlin makes this point here, something that I hadn't thought about as a man. For lots and lots of women trying to get pregnant or carrying a baby, the discovery of blood is a stab in the heart. And a lot of blood is frightening. And this woman's been there for 12 years. And we don't know her marital status, but if she's not already married, she won't be because she's spiritually unclean and unable to bear children. Two more stabs in the heart. Those would be hard for us today, especially so back then when getting married and having children was life. Emotionally and socially and financially, she needed that. And she can't have it. She lives in ashes. And Jesus brought her to life too. It's a different sort of bringing to life, and it is not as, as dramatically, powerfully tied to the connection of raising the dead, but it's, it's a mighty work, but what it is particularly is it's a merciful work. You see, he's both these things together. He's, he's the might and he's the mercy. He puts them together, and then he speaks to her in verse 22, take heart, daughter, It's the only woman that Jesus ever calls daughter. His language here is so very tender and so very comforting, and he calls her out to encourage her publicly to restore her so that everyone knows about her reverse conditions. He's not going to have to bring it up or somehow try to prove it. She's well. You're well. You're saved. From... The situation that you were living in, you're not just like physically well, now you're, you're restored and you can now again commune with God and again commune with his people. You're well. That's what he's like. This is what he's like, his, his character of, of mercy and, and his omnipotent might. This is the Messiah that we need. Remember that and take heart in that. And also be careful, if you skip this Messiah, there isn't another one. There isn't another one, just this one, who reigns 
and who reigns in such sweet, tender mercy to see even into the secret places, the things that are our hurts, that are our shames and our our hardships and our sufferings, to step in there and say, with a, a gentle touch, take heart. I see that. Be well. It may not be exactly like we expect or hope, but it will be real. Because that's who he is. Merciful to restore, mighty to save, both of those things together. That's the one that God sent to pursue us. The one with whom we can and have to deal. We see these, this might and this mercy most uniquely. We see it in this passage here, but we see it most uniquely, of course, at the cross, where in great might and mercy, he took on death, conquered it for us. The Savior we need. The only one there is. Everything is under his hand, and everything will be dealt with so perfectly and so rightly and so sweetly and so kindly. Everything is in his hand. He can handle it all, and our response to him then should be one of dependent faith, which takes us to the second observation. Faith in Jesus is challenging. But that is what leads to life. Faith in Jesus is challenging, but that is what leads to life. While Jesus is the obvious main focus of this passage, we're in a section that's talking about who he is, what he's like, his might, his authority. He's the obvious focus. There is another emphasis here. It's the faith of those who come to him. First seen in the ruler... Obviously, the the ruler is there before him, bowed down, declaring, not asking. He's declaring, I I know that you can bring her to life again. There's, There's obviously faith in that. We saw that. But we especially see it in the statement from Jesus that is in the literal middle of the passage. Verse 22 is right smack dab in the middle, the statement of Jesus. Whenever you're studying your Bible, look for things at the beginning and middle. Look for the things that are written in red. This is written in the red in the middle. Big point. Encouraging words, but also instructive words, because the woman thinks something sort of superstitious. She, she kind of thinks, all I need to do is make physical contact with his robe. He doesn't even have to know. Just get to touch his robe, and his authority will come and, and save me. And that is what happens, but Jesus wants to clarify why it happened. Your faith has made you well. Not the touch, not some magic, faith. Which, of course, doesn't mean that faith itself then is the magic. Faith didn't stop her bleeding. Jesus did. He's the one who controls all the molecules and all the mechanisms of the body, and he changed something in her so that she was well. But faith is what accessed his power, just like we saw in the healing of the paralytic in the previous chapter where Jesus saw their faith and then forgave the man his sin and also healed his paralysis also. So the key was faith first accesses the power to heal. Same thing here. She thought, I believe that if I go to him and I touch him, that he will then 
after I go to him, something will happen where he will then fix me. She believed. That's the point. Jesus is always who he is. So being God, he always reserves the right to act regardless of whether or not we know it. That, of course, is true. But typically, very often, God desiring to make clear his deity, his glory, and desiring to to heal us in a way that connects to his glory, he often waits to act on behalf of those who wait for him. That's what the Bible says. Acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Often he waits so that we realize, I needed to come to him. It was him who did it. And then we are healed. He's not always acting that way, but he's often acting that way. God honored that way. We, his believing children, delivered that way. It's a win-win situation. He acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That's clear and repeated. Seen right here. He acts on behalf of those who come to him in faith. That's a great offer. And obviously, as we were talking about earlier, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... That's an offer for you. There's an invitation that there is the warning that, that turning away from this means there is no option to, but there's an offer, there's a hope in that. Particularly when you see that the word made well is, is saved, he's, he's trying to make us think of being saved, made well in the fullest, widest possible sense, saved from our sin, the biggest problem that any of us face. That's what this is intended to make us think of. Sin in the world and sin in us and the judgment of God that's coming against us. That's our biggest problem. And what Jesus offers to do is not just heal our bodies or or, or fix our our life circumstances, but to, to heal us, to save us in the fullest sense, to save us from the wrath of God, to save us from that death to eternal life. And no superstitious behavior, no religious behavior can make that happen. Just faith in Jesus. Faith in what he did on the cross, which is not detailed here because it actually, by this point, the story has not happened yet. But what this is pointing towards in the scope of the whole story is what's coming up is the cross. Jesus was sent to go to the cross to take onto himself the wrath of God so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. And then in our in place then, as he dies to give us his life, that's, that's the salvation, that's the saving, the making well that we most need. That's what's offered to you and the invitation is come. Come and take him up on that. He is the one that you need, and he's the only one that you have. Mighty and merciful to save, so come. Come trust him. But I realize that the great majority of us here already have. We have faith in Christ. You have trusted him. You are saved from the wrath of God. You are saved to life eternal. There is so much for you, Christian, to take heart over.
You see this Jesus, and, and if you remember it and take it all in, you are saved, forgiven, befriended by God, made an heir of heaven. You have the blessed life. You got the good life. Take heart. That's true of us. And, of course, the reality is also that for us, I'm talking about the Christians here, for us, there's much to take heart of. We have the good life, yet for sure, uh-huh. And also, in the midst of this very real life, as much as we take heart, let's be honest, we are also familiar with downcast, fearful, angry, jaded, cynical, bitter, tempted, sin. Right? That's us too. I'm an heir of the kingdom. I am gladdened and heartened and full of holy joy and bitter and cynical and angry and tempted. At the same time, at least I am, because while saved by faith, we Christians too often do not live by faith. Live in dependence on him. So make the connection here. If, if you look at your life, every place that you notice, those words downcast and fearful and angry and jaded and cynical and tempted, every place you notice that, make the connection to not living by faith. That's what that is. And what I don't mean there, of course, what I don't mean there is that suddenly you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross and that you're forgiven and going to heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. Saved by faith. I'm talking about living by faith. And every time you see downcast, cynical, bitter, angry, fearful, controlled by that, every time you see that, that is not living by faith. That is not the trust of Christ and his might and mercy for me today in this. We got to get real about this, guys. And honest, I could use myself as exhibit A and exhibit B. I live here. But you do too. And if we're going to talk about, we want to be a community that is a, some sort of reflection of heaven for us here now and some sort of reflection of heaven for those out there who are looking at us. If we want people to see in us Christ, if we want to honor him, we've got to get real about this. We've got to face this, be honest, deal with it. To live by faith is to trust Christ and his might and his mercy. That's who he is always. For me today in this with regards to all the troubles that I'm facing right now, trust, faith, belief, that when I take my current problems, my concern, my fear, my pain, my confusion to Jesus today, he will respond in mighty mercy to make me well. Somehow. I don't know how. I don't see that. Of course not. I'm finite. So are you. We don't see how. But five seconds or five years or 5,000 years from now, somehow this will be met by the might and mercy of God to do me good, to bring me to life. I believe that 
and therefore say, here's my knotted up shoelaces, Lord. I can't handle it. You can. You do not. Here. And if you walk away still bitter and cynical and angry and afraid, realize I didn't leave the shoes. Sorry. What I mean is here. So to leave that analogy, what I mean is that you got to do that until it's done. Lord, here's my knotted up life. Here's my concern. Here, here, here. And I can almost check it and say, am I at rest, peace, characterized now by a, a holy joy, heartened, gladdened as I turn away from this? Or am I still kind of, oh, I didn't do it yet. That's the fight. Why is it so hard? Because given our sin natures, I think that even as Christians, we are still prone to trust ourselves. Like, again, this this analogy works so well. I I mean, kids say, I do it, right? I I do it. I I got that you can do it, but I'm going to do it. We do that sometimes. Because I want to do it, because I want to do it. Or because I want to do it a certain way, and I'm not real confident that God will. In my timing, in my way, I want to do it a certain way, and I'm not really sure that you'll do it that way. That's sometimes in us, and that's just plain old sin of pride, right? So that's there, watch that. But I think, for me, Best I understand me, my struggle, and maybe this is yours too sometimes, is somewhat different than the straight up pride. No, I'm going to do it myself. Not so much like that. In the worst, most knotted up situations that I find in my life, at least me, maybe you, I think we often find them so confusing and so overwhelming and so troubling that it is hard to sit down and figure out what's going on. What I'm not trusting to him, what the actual issue is, what the, the problem is, it's hard to sit down and even figure it out and then hard to face it and then hard to put it in front of Jesus. There are several layers there. Again, you see this with kids sometimes struggling with their shoelaces. They get all the tears and all the screaming and all the, the flailing of the shoes. It's not that hard. You kind of want to say, take a breath, calm down. But the kid, of course, is, that's us. Sometimes so confused and overwhelmed that we can't even sort it all out. Our stuff before God is... Moving on. I do that. I think we do that. I came right up to it. I didn't know what else to say about it. I didn't know what the problem was. I didn't, I, I'm really frustrated right now. What's on TV? Come back. Don't medicate with the TV. Come back. Bring it here in front of him. He does not. That's why he's here. Full of might 
and tender mercy. I think, at least for me, that sometimes the process of just like bringing myself to sit down and think about it, why am I so bothered right now? That. Because of that. Because I fear that. And I'm angry about that. That process right there then opens me up to the spot of, oh, there's the knots. Lord, I'm afraid of this. But you are. I'm angry about that. But you are for me. That process right there, that's the fight of faith. If you skip that, You'll be watching TV, the same cynical, bitter, angry, fearful, fill-in-the-blank Christian that you were when you started. Don't skip that fight. When you find, ah, I got this, that's a spot where I, I need to bring this here, put it in front of Jesus, and maybe sit there and kind of figure out what's the problem? What am I bothered about? What's, what's going on in here before him and say, Lord, you're the one I need. You have the answers to this. I have no idea how, but I will trust it to you. And when you can walk away saying, though I am sorrowing, I am rejoicing. Though I am still confused, I am trusting and confident. When you can walk away like that, you did it. Okay. That's a step of faith. A step in faith. Maybe you've got to come back in 10 minutes. As I said before, though, maturity looks like eventually you come back in 12 minutes and then 13 and you grow. So what, what do you need to take to him? Where do you find yourself not heartened and gladdened and filled with holy joy? I know you do in parts of your life because you're a Christian. Blessed are you. But other places you're not. Take those things. And, and they're probably, I, I bet that as, as they come to your mind, you're, maybe you know exactly what's going on there, but probably something in you is like, I don't really even understand that yet. Okay, that's, that's part of the process of taking the confusing thing to him. And maybe it would be helpful for you to sit with another mature Christian and say, like, here's what's going on. Can you help me understand my heart? That, that can be really helpful, really helpful. It's kind of called discipleship. Really helpful. But sometimes just sitting yourself with that in front of the, Jesus, in front of the Lord and saying, like, here, Lord. And then it begins, as I sit there, it begins to fall out and I see that. So what is it for you? And what of his character, what of his promises, what of his mighty mercy applies to that? Put those things together in your mind. Lord, I believe this, but help my unbelief. That's the fight of faith. You grow in that over time. 
It is difficult, it is challenging, but that's what leads to heartened life. Faith in Jesus. Moment by moment by moment. Now and into eternity, all the way until you die. Day by day by day, that fight leads to life. If you want help thinking that through, I, I don't know what that may have unearthed for you. If you want help thinking it through, I'd be more than happy to talk about it. But what I want to encourage you to do is take it to Jesus first. Then we'll talk. If you still need to, well, then we'll talk. Mighty and merciful, trust him. Let me pray. Lord, I don't know exactly what to ask you for each person here. We're all in different spots. For those for whom this is not immediately relevant, will you just kind of store it in there for the future? For those that it is particularly hot topic here in some way, will you meet them right now and minister to them? You're the Savior. You have all power. You know just how to wisely, graciously, mercifully apply it. So please do. Meet us and build us up. And if there are some here or some who hear this somewhere who, who don't yet know you, speak in a way that is understandable and clear and call them, please. Save us from death to life, Lord. You can. We ask you to please help. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.